0: The way you're underwriting it as an operator that's hands-on in in the asset class the storage is you're looking at your current st- current performance versus your stabilized value add. So we might be buying it only on a five or six cap on current performance. Now we're, we should be around a seven cap, but we want to get that to an eight and a half to ten. This is the Passive Wealth
1: Strategy Show, the show that will help you reach financial independence through real estate investing, and building Wealth on Main Street by Investing in Real Estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Jeremiah Boucher. Jeremiah is a highly experienced commercial real estate investor. Today we're going through his journey, investing in mobile home parks, being very successful in mobile home parks, but ultimately finding that everything wasn't quite right with how things were going. He was making a lot of money, but there was a better opportunity on the horizon for him in self-storage investing. So we're going through His pivot from mobile home parks to self-storage investing, why he made that pivot, how he looks at deals today, how he looks at markets today, how we as investors who are interested in self-storage, I invest in self-storage, how you can take that to the next level and learn lessons from an expert like Jeremiah in finding deals in self-storage investing, what to look for in the sponsor, what to look for in the market where the opportunity lies in self-storage investing, how we can create value in self-storage properties, so much more. Love this conversation, how we can find our edge in commercial real estate investing. He is a wealth of knowledge. It's a great conversation. For those of you out there who are dedicated to building wealth with commercial real estate, this is the one to listen to. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor. And to date, I have acquired, invested in, partnered on, or otherwise had a hand in over $150 million of commercial real estate investments. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call. And I will look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're an Apple podcast user, and you enjoy the show, please take a moment, to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping Wall Street along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest today is Jeremiah Boucher digging into his transformation from mobile home park investor to self-storage investor, how we can have an edge as real estate investors and commercial real estate investors, and so much more. So many great lessons, so many great nuggets in this one. Without any further ado, here we go. Jeremiah, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to go through your experience, your background, what you invest in, everything along those lines. So Let's dive into it. Could you tell our listeners a bit about yourself, your business, what you invest in, everything around that?
0: Yeah, Taylor. Thanks for having me here. I specialize in self-storage right now. That's the primary asset class. My company's called Patriot Holdings. We're building a brand where we aggregate facilities around the country, meaning buying small mom and pops or medium-sized mom and pops, suburban tertiary markets. They're mismanaged businesses. We pave it, paint it, light it, fence it, do all the good technology, Put in good management, raise the rents, and then add the value. So we're pure value add investors, been doing it 20 years. Also, I originally started in manufactured housing. So mobile home parks or land lease communities, they're the flavor of, uh, I guess they were the flavor of the market a few years ago. Maybe they still are. They're a little overvalued. So that's why I be- haven't really hit heavy into that management or that asset class. A lot of work too. I can give you the down and dirty on those. And then right now I'm building my, my first big box kind of fusion center 150,000 square foot industrial in boston and we're doing some small bay industrial that complement our storage that's
1: awesome you have so many things going on and i'd love to dive into since you mentioned it kind of the the hairier side of mobile home parks because in recent years they've kind of been pitched to investors as hey you know it's kind of easy they're all cheap they cash flow great and you just hire somebody who lives in the park to manage the whole thing for you But the reality is a little more complicated than that. So let's dive in. Let's dive into it. Yeah.
0: It's a good topic because if this podcast is for investors by investors, right? So it's people want to know what the heck I'm investing in and how do I get in a a return or an edge or an advantage through this alternative investment? Because if you're investing in mobile home parks or some type of unconventional asset, you want yield. So I would say, number one, you got to evaluate. There's two things. Obviously, it's the asset and the sponsor or the operator. So number one, to vet the asset, I would say, you know, you don't want the old beat up trailer park. It's just a rough asset to manage. I mean, now, if it's a covered land play, that's a different angle. If you're buying it in Denver, Colorado, Las Vegas, Nevada, LA in California, that's a different story because that's just the path of 12, 24, 36 months to get it re-entitled, get a higher and better use, and then transition that asset to a different use and develop, you know, something that has a higher value. That's a different that's a different ball game. What I'm talking about is buying actual manufactured housing that you're going to hold for 5 to 10 plus years. So you want to have number 1 a really good infrastructure and a really good tenant base. So and you what I mean by that is that your grandmother or your mother would not be afraid to be there where, you know, you you know, give good cars, decent decent cars. You got Decent houses, vinyl siding, shingle roof to the for the most part, some metal houses, but there's somewhat a pride of ownership. It's just a scary place to be because I have to tell you that is just such a challenging aspect of the business where I'm not saying it can't work, but if you want to own it long term and you wanna really have predictable returns over time, if you bid into those old trailer parks, you're gonna just pump tons of money into CapEx and the operator is gonna burn out. So that's that's my opinion. Anyone can take it for what it is. There is money in really low-income communities, but I'm done with them. So for me, you know, I would secondly look at the operator. What's their track record? Have they bought a lot of these parks? Uh, you know, how do they? What management reports do I get? Do they know how to sell homes? Because it's a very important aspect of the business, and it's a big differentiator from apartments. So if you buy a mobile home park and your homes over time depreciate, so two or three or four of those homes are dilapidated. The tenant doesn't really want to deal with them anymore. They walk away from them or you have to put a lien on them and evict them. You're going to have to come in there and replace that home. There's only so much you can go and fix an old mobile home. So you need to find out, do they have a track record buying new homes or finding used homes and selling them in the park? Because the ultimate model that everyone wants to own is just the land. You do not want to own any of the units. You don't want to sectionate them. I've done it. You don't want to rent them you want to own you want to pride of ownership where the tenant owns their own home and then on our end we just lease all the land.
1: So that's what folks talk about so often is you just want to own the land, you don't want to own the trailers themselves or the homes themselves if you if if I want to get the terms right. Kind of what I've found, this is not an asset class that I invest in, but I know a lot of mobile home park investors. What I found is that's easier said than done. Mm-hmm. You're maybe you're buying a park that has homes that come with it or you're just kind of got to pick them up over time because people are just going to leave and abandon their mobile homes on your on your facility. So how I mean how do you really deal with that in a in a real sense and getting those getting those homes, you know, off of your books and and sold to somebody if you do kind of inherit them by buying a mobile home park.
0: It's an active campaign where you have to have a sales process with the tenants where you're essentially and doing an installment sale and giving them structuring a sale over time where they would own the home if you are going to sell it to that tenant, you want to f- structure a-, a way to sell that home to that tenant at any means possible. Over a two-year payment plan, three-year payment plan, it gets it off your books, like you said. It's just communication, participating with the tenant. And then if you don't want to buy a park where 80% of the homes are rentals or 90%, that's a very hard transition and there's a lot of repairs and maintenance. So you might would want to steer away from that or, or investing in that unless. This person is getting it for a great deal and they have a track record turning that around, but you wanna avoid, I mean, there's no way around it. You have to really work with the tenant and and try to sell it the best way you can. It's a rent-to-own program and it's all sale whatever it takes.
1: Okay, okay. So you made that shift or you kind of moved away from mobile home park investing, gravitated more toward self-storage investing. I might be messing up the timeline here but you made some decisions along the way to get more into self-storage. You talk about having an edge, in real estate investing so what kind of sparked that for you do you remember the moment where you thought maybe i should start looking for other asset classes or the self-storage thing looks like a great opportunity do you remember when that happened
0: oh yeah yeah i mean one particular moment there was a cowboy in vegas where i was managing these parks i had four of them throughout the city he couldn't he would not get out of the home he was an alcoholic we had so many repetitive domestic issues with this person with the cops And I had to go over there myself and try to get him out of the home. The cops wouldn't evict him because we had a lien on his home and they weren't going to get involved with this process with the mobile home. We didn't have the sheriff to to get a warrant and to get him out of there. So they said, hey, it's your problem. It's a bad area of town. You know, if he didn't break the law, we're not dealing with this type of rental issue. And then one of the he was I, I knocked on his door. He's telling me he, he doesn't want to pay. He has a gun in his holster. He's got a Budweiser. He pulls his gun out. He's waving it around. He's not threatening me, but it's a very precarious position when I know he's an alcoholic. So at that moment, I'm like, you know what? I don't even want to deal with this anymore. I, I really, you know at this stage, have done this too long. And I'd like to get out of this type of tenant and this type of property management. So luckily, the guy committed a crime. A few days later, he went to jail. We own the home. So we were able to bulldoze the home over while he was in jail for a few days, completely demolished the home and got him out of there. But that's the type of things you got to deal with. And I said, I'm, you know, I'm tired of this. The unrealized cost to manage that asset was tremendous. And, and my return on equity was ridiculous. And so was my investors. So I was like, I'm ready. I'm ready to get out of this and take the equity and go somewhere else.
1: Okay, great. So how do you start making those first steps to, to learn or to select and learn a new asset class so you can feel comfortable actually going and executing on deals because it's a different asset class is a different animal to different business, right? It might be real estate, but self-storage is not the same as mobile home parks, right?
0: That's right. That's right. And what I my driver to make that decision was capital expenditures. So I looked at myself like, you know, I've built my career off doing creative financing or bootstrapping deals with a lot of older owners on pretty rough assets in pretty remote areas of the country because I had no money and I had to get creative and get resourceful. And I caught a bull market in real estate and and the asset class boomed over that decade, the first decade I was in it. So I, I lucked out in that respect, but I learned a lot of lessons. And I would say that number one lesson is, you know, I don't want to buy an older asset. Like when I'm saying older, Like, if I'm going to do a storage building, something built in the early 1900s that was a converted mill, I know there's going to be CapEx that I can't control and it's going to come back and bite me. Or I'm going to buy, if I'm buying apartments from the 40s or 50s or 60s, there's going to be a huge CapEx budget that I can't control. And if it's a storage facility, I know after the roofs, if the roofs work and the drainage of the asphalt works and and it's all in decent condition, I can do one, one repair. And that's going to last me another ten to twenty to thirty years, depending on how old that asset is. So they're very predictable for me. And also with mobile home parks or industrial properties, you know, if they're built after nineteen eighty or with the mobile home park, if it has a quality infrastructure, I'm going to know that that's going to be predictable to get those distributions for myself and the investor. It was a very selfish reason. I, I wanted to get, <laughs> I wanted actual peace of mind. Number one, to manage it. Number two, I wanted distributions every single month.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. We're all here to make money, right? That's the whole point of doing this thing, right? Yes. So it's not a charity. <laughs> so one of the things about self-storage that I think concerns a lot of investors and gets brought up is whether it's overbuilt in a given area. How have you dealt with that in your business? Especially again, when you were first getting your footing in the self-storage space and determining whether these deals you're you were executing on in the beginning were in overbuilt areas how did you assess the you know demand versus supply
0: and everything around that that's a great question i mean that's your number one enemy in storage it's going to be additional supply or oversupply that it's really it's when someone asked me how's storage it's such a broad question i mean it's a market within a market within a market i mean there's regions there's counties and then there's neighborhoods within that area and storage is quite a commodity. I mean, there's only so much you could do to a facility. And at the end of the day, it comes down to convenience and price. And meaning, you know, the person that has to drive to Walmart and to the grocery store and they go by Main Street and they drive by your storage, if they're every single day, you know, they may pay a 10 or 20% premium or a, a decent rate to, to lease your storage if it looks safe and it's, it's secure. And, the, you know their wife can go there, and it's well lit and everybody's safe. Versus, you know, ten or twenty minutes out of town. You, you know, you're you're maybe ten dollars cheaper. No one's. You, it's all about convenience, and you got to be pretty damn cheap to go way out of your way to go get storage. So for us, it's <laughs> you know looking at visibility and location is number one. So if you could be off the interstate or you be near all the trades in the area, meaning the 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 retail amenities, Walmart, Tractor Supply, Dollar General. And you got visibility where you got those ten thousand cars passing a day. That's number one. And then number two is assessing, you know, what is the competition. And if you know, we use a Radius Plus, which is owned by I think Compass, and it's a data source where we do a a five and ten mile feasibility study, and we look at how many store, how many square feet per person are there in that area, in that trade area, and if there's over. You know, ten or twelve or thirteen square feet per person, you know in that market, even if there's apartments or a house, single-family house, it doesn't matter. You know that's that's near the threshold where there's a lot of storage per person. So I'm not saying you don't do it, but I'm saying that you're you, I wouldn't go build you know two hundred or three hundred more units. I would be very cautious of of stabilizing that asset. So if you have to fill it up, be very conservative on how fast you're going to fill it. And number two, I would underwrite a higher vacancy concessions and even some credit loss where you might be at you know 10 or 15% stabilized a uh, stabilization on your vacancy so really your maximum revenue you're going to get is maybe 85% of economic full economic occupancy i would build in that buffer in there where you're always going to have a, a high level of vacancy because there's so much other product wow interesting okay
1: so as we're talking numbers here too you mentioned earlier on when we were talking about mobile home parks that that space has kind of it's had a lot of people come into it. It's been bid up in some ways. And you know, if we're honest, that's happened to pretty much all kinds of real estate and self storage is is one of them. But you know ostensibly the the deals are still out there. the deals are still working for you. I know deals are still working for me for me, so I'm happy. But how does that that like appreciation in the market and self storage? Like affect you? How does it grab you? What do you think about that? Are there too many newbies out there doing self-storage deals or do you still feel good about the future and the conditions of the self-storage market?
0: That's a great question. I, the way we look at it right now, when you adapt to the marketplace, being inflated is, you, number one, you got to have good deal flow. So you got to really be going out there and finding off-market deals by connecting to a lot of off-market owners through your database. And that takes a lot of time and effort you know, where we're constantly cultivating data from Google and from CoStar and all that good stuff. But the, really, the way you're underwriting it as an operator that's hands-on in in the asset class and storage is you're looking at your current, st- current performance versus your stabilized value add. So we might be buying it only on a five or six cap on current performance. Now, we're, we should be around a seven cap. But we want to get that to an eight and a half to 10. So even in conservative underwriting, there better be a big value add kick. So number one, raising rents, which right now I wouldn't, I wouldn't project much of doing. But you're finding some of these owners that are so far below market, and they're so mismanaged that that still is there because they don't even have a website where they actually rent the damn units from. So I mean, you're just you're just <laughs> being available to the customer. Then, you know, you're actually opening up the the facility to being advertised. You you got normal Google AdWords and you got some professional signage and you got some amenities of just paving and making it nice nice and lit and making it look safe with some gate and key, key gate access. Just doing the basics could give you that that nice lift, that 20% lift of revenue on that site because it's so mismanaged. And then you know the big kicker, my favorite type of storage deals is when you get that extra acre, two acres, three acres, five acres of land, and then you can expand and add another two, 300 units plus parking that's gravy because you already have proof of concept for the business. Really incrementally, it's not increasing any of your costs. Your manager is already there. You're already maintaining it. Your property taxes go up a little bit. So your expense ratio just creeps up maybe 2 maybe 3%, but your revenue creeps up 20%, 30 40%. So those are the really the doubles or triples that you're hitting because it's, it's a no-brainer to, to find those deals. And I'm not so worried about the current position. I'm really worried about what, what's the stabilized or unlevered yield After we've already made all our improvements,
1: okay. So in that vein, when you're going to add square footage or change the property in some way, develop some of the undeveloped portion of the property, there's all well. Depending on where you are, there's typically a question of whether this is going to get approved by zoning Mm. and planning, or you know the powers that be, the local municipality, whether they're going to say no way or you know be able to proceed in in some manner. How do you look at mitigating? that risk, dealing with that risk in a self-storage deal?
0: Well, if you're looking at an investment personally or with a sponsor, number one, I would never suggest closing on the land without the entitlements or the zoning approvals. So especially in this market now, I mean, in in January, 2023, there's no reason you should go buy a piece of land without getting your zoning approvals from the municipality. I mean, land is not trading. So don't take on that development risk. No way. Because you never know, nothing's guaranteed. I've bought pieces off the freeway in Vegas and I couldn't get my, and it was zoned. The overlay was for it, but not my zoning. And I couldn't get the transition and I couldn't get the use. So I don't recommend that. Number two is if it's already an existing use on site and it, and that's not the full component of your return, that expansion, then that's just gravy. So I, And you have a pretty good argument with the town that they've already approved the use. And as long as you don't encroach into major wetlands or there's a major setback or easement through that property, I mean, you're going to get the use and zoning approval because you're already operating a storage business on that site. So I would say that mitigates the risk. If you have that additional land, you do already have the use. But I I just wouldn't suggest anyone buy land without without the zoning approvals. And don't rezone residential or agricultural to commercial. I, I just wouldn't even bother with that right now, with the risk of... The fifty thousand dollars of engineering fees and attorney fees, and because it's just such a challenging hurdle to overcome. Mm, Okay, okay.
1: So we talk on the show about shiny object, shiny object syndrome. I've been subject to that myself. You know, in years past, I do a better job of staying focused now, and you know, things have changed, and we've done deals and all of that. But you're doing deals in in different asset classes, and have done deals in different asset classes. You're an established investor, and I know other established investors who are successful in doing deals in different asset classes. But how do you deal with that? How do you think about, okay, I'm going to go and do a deal in another asset class and not think that you're getting into like a shiny object syndrome, just looking for something else? Because I know some of our listeners out there may be bouncing around from asset class to asset class because they're not finding a deal that works from them. They're just looking for the next thing and not committing enough to the first one. So how, you know, you as a successful investor, how have you avoided that shiny object syndrome and actually made things happen in the new asset classes you've gone after?
0: Yeah. So at this stage, I've been in real estate 20 years and I've tried all the asset classes. So I would (laughs) have to tell you, I did stick, The, the most success that I've had, I stuck with one at a time. So that's the advice I give is I started in commercial real estate, I, I did some retail and uh, a little bit of office, and that was a mess. When I got into mobile home parks, I stuck with those for over a decade. And that's where I made decent money and got my career started and built my company off of. Not until that probably seven, eight, nine years into that business, I bought a few storage facilities because they were in addition to the mobile home park. The owners of that same mobile home park owned the storage next door. So I, I was able to segue into that, getting some creative terms and utilizing the management where it didn't really affect my infrastructure much and take away from my sole focus of mobile home parks. As 2018, 2019 was, was uh, transpiring, I saw the asset value in mobile home parks skyrocket. And I saw those issues of capital expenditures and management issues for me to scale. And I thought, okay, I have a few storage facilities. I like this asset. I'm going to pivot and then I allocated my resources really over to storage. Now, I had some residual deals from that I legacy type things that, that I found in mobile home parks from the decade of relationships I already made. But I was fully focused on really prospecting storage. And then all my resources went over to this direction. And that's how I was able to scale to you know, 70 facilities and 3 mil- or 300 million in assets in those asset classes. So it was all all focuses, all guns blazing on one asset class at a time. And then anytime I did something out of that arena, like when I bought a retail center and did a a laundromat in uh, Connecticut, that was a huge waste of time. So it's like, I (laughs) suggest people stay focused on one at a time and and don't bounce around. It's if you're, especially if you're starting out. So
1: how do you, I mean, how do you focus? I mean, especially in the short term, right? There's so many things pulling on our attention, right? Whether it's 24-hour cable news for some of us or time-wasting sites or apps or, you know, what have you, you're getting all these things done. Obviously, in the in the short term or in the moment, you're managing to stay focused and execute on your plan and, and get things done. So do you have any practices around that to keep yourself, you know, pushing forward on a minute-by-minute, minute, you know, hour-by-hour hour basis and and getting things completed, not getting distracted?
0: Oh, man, that's... For every entrepreneur, executive, business owner, this is—I think—it's the critical issue of the day. You know, focus is the key asset that we have: our energy and focus. Because without those, time gets obliterated anyway. So, what's the use <laughs> of time if you can't channel it right with energy and focus? So, I—I I, I think that question is the magic pill, right? She's like, I have no idea how to how to really answer it, but. So the way I would say is I'm hyper-focused on a few key levers in my business, a few key drivers. And those drivers are a really acquiring storage by leveraging my team. And we have a sales staff and a data staff. So I got to focus on the goal. And the goal is to just be very focused on these this, this parameters or criteria of the storage facility and say no to everything else you know, no big conversions, no older buildings, no markets that are below $10 in, in achievable rents annually. No, you know, no funky layouts, you know, nothing that's like fully vacant that's not in our markets. So we have to say no, just like Buffett says, you know, the the richest, wealthiest, best investors in the world say no more than anyone else. So we have a very precise niche and then the, yeah, the other side is, you know, fundraising and delivering on our reporting and our management. and the, So those, I have key leaders, seven key leaders in the company now that I meet with and it's like management Mondays. So I have hour on the hour for seven hours, those seven people. And we're talking about what are the key drivers in your department so that we can, you know, meet our goals for the year. Awesome. Awesome.
1: So for someone out there, before we move on to the three questions I ask every guest on the show, you talk about your investing edge, your investors edge. For someone out there who's wondering how they can find their own edge as a real estate investor, what's the next step to get started? How can they head down that path?
0: yeah, i mean you I think you led them down the path with this with the conversation that you've been asking me the different questions where number one, pick an asset class that you believe in, so whatever that is, you know there has to be a reason why they want to learn more about it and invest in it either actively or passively. so like I said for everyone. You know, with industrial storage and manufactured housing, there's low capex, and I have multiple tenants, and I have shorter-term leases that I can adapt with inflation. So, it, to me, it's it's a the trade-off is it's a bitch to manage, and there's a lot of people you got to deal with. <laughs> uh, but the flip side is I am bulletproof when it comes to not one tenant turning my lights out and long-term leases and inflation not eating me my returns up. So, so they and they're very and banks love them as well. So choose the asset class that you like, pick one. And then number two, pick a region and really get to know it. You know, real estate is, the, the opportunities are in the inefficiencies. So when you can go out and you know that market, just like Buffett or any investor sees companies and know how to analyze companies quickly and you make that investment not for the 12 month period, you're buying into that company or making that investment for a long-term play. And if you sell it early, great, good for, you know, you made a win, but you're investing for the long haul you need to know the attributes of that market and you need to know what are the rents what are the the competitors you know what schools are there what jobs are there is are people leaving do i feel comfortable there so you know and i picked a region i went back to the new england region where i'm from and you know i really got to know that entire region so when i honed in on on growing my storage business one i I was full fully bought into storage. I loved the technology aspect of it. I loved this, all the other aspects. And then two, I knew the market in and out. I, I studied it. I learned it. I learned, you know, where where the rents are really good, where it's undersupplied, and and then I felt comfortable taking on risks of continuing to invest in markets that looked like they were way out in the boonies or they weren't attractive to institutional investors. But but then, you know, they ended up being very successful.
1: Nice. Nice. Okay. Love it.
0: Right now, we're going to
1: take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal Capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the Personal Capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Jeremiah, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yes. (laughs) Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education?
0: So the best deal that I ever bought in my life was in a small town in New Hampshire on the border of Vermont. And it's a storage facility that was just three buildings. It was on six acres and it's across from a Walmart. But in this town in Vermont, across the river, they don't allow Walmart. So 20,000 or 30,000 people from Vermont would come over to shop at Walmart and this small little town in New Hampshire would get all this traffic. So on the surface, it looked like there was only like 5,000 people in this town. But then we got thirty or 40,000 people to come over to go actually go do all the shopping. <laughs> and that deal was this really cool deal where I structured it where the seller didn't want to pay taxes out of the get-go. And they, they lived next door. And, I, and what I did is they had an S-Corp or they had a, a C-Corp. But I bought into it, and I bought twenty percent of the for one hundred and fifty grand, paying off their debt and creating the asset being free and clear. But I was only a twenty percent owner. But then I fixed the price of their eighty, the other eighty percent at at a million fifty, and I was able to manage and operate the facility and have the rights to to go, you know, make decisions on it. So I essentially did a creative owner financing technique. But what I did is what it was really cool is they allowed me to borrow against the asset. So I paid off the debt, I, I controlled the asset, I fixed the value of the shares, and then I borrowed against the asset they were still the majority owner of, took out a half a million dollar line of uh, development loan on, doubled the size, doubled the value from a million to two million, paid off their fixed shares, create a million dollars in value, and then ended up expanding that two more times and they reinvested with me in the facility down the road, and I bought the competitor. And now I own this market, and I create about $80,000 of gross income every month. And that's a $10 million valuation on those assets. And my cost basis is under five. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that was on, awesome. on $150,000 investment. I created $5 million in value. <laughs> <laughs> Shook.
1: That is quite the deal. I love that. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment.
0: What is the worst investment you ever made? I've I've had a few, a few, a few. The worst, well, monetarily, the worst one I invested in in real estate was an office condo building in Puerto Rico. And I did it for tax reasons in order to get depreciation to offset actual gains in a year. And our key tenant got audited and they were embezzling and they, they were a trades, a technical school. And they, and they went out of business quickly during the Obama wow. administration. So I lost some significant money there. And then in the mobile home park side, I, uh, I bought a park in Quad Cities, Iowa, where it was uh, over 50% sex offenders. I didn't know. I was very young. I, I got the deal with very low down payment, wondered why the the owner sold it to me so cheap. And then I found out later that the tenant base was really challenging, and uh, I learned a lot of lessons there and, and got out of that, didn't lose money, but that was uh, that was a really m- bad nightmare
1: Wow, that's add that to your uh, due diligence checklist I suppose. <laughs> yes yes well my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson
0: you've learned in business and investing? I would say in in my book, I put the six that I learned, but out of all of them yeah. You know, so I called my book Finding Your Edge and how to win at the game of commercial real estate. And I would have to say, you, you got to have self-awareness to know what your personal strengths or advantages or your, the one thing that you can do somewhat better than most other people and what you enjoy doing better than, than other people. And then you got to play to that strength because if it isn't in your nature, inherent in who you are, Like me, you know, like I I, I love sports. I love team sports. I was a, I was a captain on football team. I love competing. I I love speaking. I love talking to people. I love fast paced environment. I like the pressure like, I like stress, you know, I like that. So for me being the sponsor and an entrepreneur and, and having the, the ability to, to take the last shot is, is fun for me. So, you know, that is in my demeanor, you know, but I would say other people, if that's not for you, that doesn't, you know, that's not your edge. Don't do it. So so I thought real estate was a great, a great complimentary thing for me where I could go out and take a lot of rejection, have a lot of energy and get people to to trust me because I knew what the hell I was doing and I could help solve their problem. So whatever that is for each individual, you need to figure out what it is and play to that strength. Because, you know, if you don't know what it is and you're at that table, like, like the the classic poker line, if you can't spot the sucker at the table, you know, you're the sucker. You you don't know what your edge is. So you better know at least what you're good at or or you're the guy sitting there grasping onto that shiny, you know, that shiny object syndrome where you're looking for the next great thing and you're never going to really play to, to your potential.
1: Wow. That's a big one. I'm no good at poker. I know that much. So I would be the sucker, but that's why I don't play poker. So I know that's <laughs> a great lesson. Yeah. I want to thank you so much for joining us today, sharing all these awesome lessons. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about what you're up to, if they want to find your book or your podcast or anything like that, where can they track you down?
0: Yeah, Taylor, Patreonholdings.com. That's uh, that's the website. You come reach out, and then Finding Your Edge on Amazon: How to Win at the Game of Commercial Real Estate. And then if social media, it's jerlinks, Links, J E R Links.com. And I want to put out good content. If you're, I just want to share the inside scoop on storage and uh, mobile home parks and, you know, be able to help people make good investments for themselves, really get the inside track on what's going on.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much once again for joining us today to everybody out there. Thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple podcast five stars. If you don't mind you guys, I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.